Hi, welcome to Timely Issues, the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my hope is that our time together is uh, fruitful for those of you who have carved out the time to be with us. And the topic today uh, is uh, a bit irreverent, but extraordinarily important. Uh, of course, I'm referring to long-term care, uh, which is at a crossroads, uh, both in the United States, the UK, and elsewhere. And I'm using the image of faulty towers, the famous or infamous John Cleese uh, program, comedy program, built around the care home in the United States and its adventures, or should I say, misadventures. So what I hope to talk about today is the current situation in uh, care homes and long-term care, focusing particularly on uh, the UK, uh, talk about some myths, one myth in particular about aging, uh, talk about, of course, the COVID-19, which is at the center of the current crisis in the sector, uh, review likely recovery models and some scenarios, and more importantly, or very importantly, effective responses. How can managers in the sector respond effectively in this during this crisis and immediately afterwards and focus those possible actions on the four strategies uh, that we've seen work in other markets and in other circumstances when there's uh, challenges, crises uh, in markets and they decline. So the first myth I'd like to address has to do with aging itself. There's uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, humor in this photo, but there's quite a bit of buzz associated with the size of the aging population and the number of individuals in it. And this myth has been promulgated widely. And the myth is that there's just a lot of age-targeted, age-appropriate consumers in the sector. Well, uh, the truth is that in England and Wales, and the situation in the United States is very similar, the primary age at which consumers begin to uh, more aggressively consume uh, long-term care services is 85 years of age. And if you look at the number of live births in the United Kingdom um, in 1935, you can see that that's when someone in 2020 would be 85 years of age. And you can see here that in 1935, uh, live births in the United Kingdom were at a low point, and they remain at that low point for quite some number of years, seven or eight years, and then they begin to increase again. So it isn't until 1942 that the live births in the United Kingdom started to pick up again. So between 2020 and 2027, we will be experiencing more of a drought, more of a dearth in age-qualified consumers in the long-term care markets. Now, this is often overlooked or not discussed at all, even in academic papers, and this is a dramatic oversight. And the important thing for us is that the market for long-term care services 
in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Even before COVID hit, the market was terrible. It was bad before the pandemic, and now the pandemic has ravaged congregate care in the United Kingdom. And you see from a ONS-derived graphic that appeared in the BBC, these quote-unquote excess deaths in the dark red here associated with COVID in care homes in England and Wales. And actually, one would need to do a very careful analysis of above the uh, benchmark line of 2019 deaths to determine which component of those are actually traceable to COVID-19. Uh, perhaps COVID-19 wasn't mentioned specifically on the death certificate, but actually either was a primary contributor or actually the main cause of death. So it's a significant crisis. And the issue with the crisis, of course, is that it's an unexpected event. But what damage does the crisis do to our brand? What is the brand of long-term care in the UK and the United and in the United Kingdom, Wales, Ireland, and in the United States? Well, the brand is indeed faulty towers. It is a negative metaphor in general. And fact number two, uh, the brand now is damaged. Um, and we've heard so many times from so many clients and at so many conferences, forums, newsletters, research reports, uh, phone calls, it'll never happen here. We have a great reputation. Families love us. Local authority love us. We know what to do. My team can handle it. Well, truth is that this is an, uh, a seismic change in the negativity with which the public views congregate long-term care. And the news media, as you can see from the Four News article here, uh, a feature piece that appeared in, uh, I think it was in April or early May, uh, this is just a field day for the media uh, to sell uh, negative stories about the sector. So what's different in this situation is that the entire sector is under siege. Um, this is prompting or stimulating latent guilt in our cultures about not caring for grandmother at home. Uh, it has no end in sight. There's no uh, specific end that one can point to. And the fulfillment or production is threatened. And that, by that, I mean the staff are equally threatened in care homes and nursing centers. And that, in turn, has the corollary or the obverse question, who wants to work for you? Who would wanna work in a sector that's being so ravaged by, the, by this disease? So the recruitment and retention is, a, is an enormous challenge in regular circumstances. And now in this crisis, it's accentuating or exaggerating the negative impacts of the economic model it's bringing home the fact that in uh, care homes and nursing centers in the UK and the US and other places is a very mixed inventory. It's difficult to be consistent and have consistent standards when the inventory ranges from very small care homes with only a few uh, units to very large centers that are custom built.
The other issue with recruitment and retention is the regulatory burden. Um, it's very difficult environment to work because of the regulatory component. And we just learning recently that the Public Accounts Committee in the UK is publishing its uh, review of the need for guidance in the long-term care sector, uh, much overdue, but this is the type of regulatory uh, scrutiny that will result from this COVID crisis, which has been needed for some time, but which has the risk of holding significant uh, untoward, unexpected, and unpleasant surprises. It also has the potential for creating some very positive changes in the sector and the role that we as providers and as uh, organizations, the role we can take in directing that, I think is tremendously important. The other thing in recruitment and retention is this issue around negative cultural bias toward care homes, toward long-term care, toward nursing centers. This has a direct impact on recruitment and retention as well, making the job of finding and keeping qualified staff, qualified uh, personal care attendants, very, very difficult. So in the UK, it's a, it's a pretty big sector and there's about 1.2 million uh, individuals who work in long-term care. And this includes uh, nursing homes, um, uh, uh, domiciliary care, uh, community care, and uh, care homes in general. And you can see that the vast majority here, six, well, the majority, 610,000 work in people's homes. It's a large group, it's a diverse group, and it's a very low paid wage group. And you can see here from data, looking at job losses in the United States and the United Kingdom, which job, which uh, payroll cohorts, which pay rate strata are being most impacted by COVID. And you can see that the low pay wage groups are being disproportionately impacted by unemployment at this time. So we can see that the means of production, which is another way to say uh, that's our staff, they are our means of production in long-term care. They are being uh, outsized impacted in a negative way by the COVID-19 crisis. Um, the uh, Skills for Care did a survey pre-COVID uh, and looked at the uh, difference between uh, leavers and stayers in um, care homes and in long-term care, the adult social care workforce. And we can see that there's a disproportionate and growing number of individuals leaving versus staying. So it's extraordinarily important to zero in on this component as we look at issues uh, such as regulatory burden, as we look at issues uh, such as the economic model, to look at how adult social care, long-term care, congregate care can become more competitive in the workforce, in the labor, in the labor markets. So summarizing about staff, we have a situation where we're struggling for recruitment. Uh, it's difficult 
to retain staff under the current, it was difficult before COVID and it's even more difficult now uh, as unemployment surges it, in other situations during um, economic downturns or regular your standard run of the run of the mill recession, you'd look at unemployment growing and say, well, is this an opportunity uh, for me to recruit from an unemployed group of individuals in my local marketplace area? But the question becomes, uh, it, is long-term care an attractive alternative for suitably qualified, motivated individuals who become unemployed? And that's a very good question. And that raises the question of how do we communicate the relative advantages, disadvantages, and features and benefits of recruiting staff to work in long-term care? Uh, there's been some interesting work research done on this, but we don't see these research reviews, these peer-reviewed studies, we don't see them being implemented by care providers the way uh, we hope they should be and could be. So struggling occupancy, struggling recruitment and retention, the economic model is struggling. We have old inventory, onerous regulatory burden and negative cultural battle. Pretty chipper assessment, I'd say overall, it's uh, quite, a, quite a situation. Um, so how do we recover? Well, in, among the models of recovery, we look in general at economic modeling to see what's likely. And in this current situation where the responses, the public health responses to the disease have been remarkably inconsistent uh, between and among countries, um, what we, and in the United States between and among states, what we see most likely is a recovery model where we begin to recover uh, and then there's uh, stabilization or deterioration and then we begin to recover still further and there's further stabilization or deterioration, et cetera. And that's the way we see this recovery occurring. Alternatively, we could see recovery and then another wave. People haven't been really talking about the second wave of SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus, but that is looming. Most of the discussion has been about what's occurring still in the first wave, but we have a second wave of the virus to anticipate. Uh, and we can hope, we can pray that there will be a vaccine available and effective treatments available. But the fact is that this pandemic will follow the path of previous pandemics and there will be a second wave, which may mean that the type of recovery we have will look like B4 rather than A1. So the factors that will be important to rebuilding and restoring the brand of long-term care post-COVID have to do with acceptance of congregate long-term care and long-term care overall have to do with acceptance of it in the cultures. So in the UK in particular, how well is long-term care in particular 
nursing care, adult social care, how well are they accepted? And the, the flip side of that is to what degree it's actually utilized. So, and that's the term penetration. So we look at that carefully to see what impact acceptance will have on penetration. And there's always trade-offs. There's trade-offs between uh, the risks associated with uh, moving into or considering utilizing long-term care. And there's always a trade-off between doing nothing, what the status quo is, and the advantages of accessing or utilizing long-term care. So from a sales and marketing point of view, from an acceptance penetration point of view, long-term care is a solution that's almost always pitted against the status quo. No, no, we can take care of this. No, no, we've got mom covered. Uh, well, you know, if we just, if I just change my schedule at work, I can handle this situation by going and visiting mom in her flat from time to time. So you're the what the trade-offs are between the accessing long-term care and the status quo. There's also, as we already alluded to, the issue of government and regulatory intervention. It's an enormous challenge. Uh, governments across Europe and in the United States do not have uh, very good regulatory monitoring and surveillance schemes for long-term care. The reasons for that are multiple, but have to do primarily with the relative importance of long-term care uh, in the panoply of issues that governments need to deal with. And frankly, long-term care has been relegated to secondary or even tertiary importance. But yet the regulatory invention, the intervention looms its head whenever something bad happens and makes it into the press or makes it into a politician's uh, front of mind awareness. Uh, and that's, that's what we need to be wary of and need to be concerned with. And this is among the things that we as managers, we as operators and or academics uh, have an opportunity to influence going forward. We will probably see more onerous regulation. One can uh, hope, one can plan, one can push back, but I believe we're going to see uh, more onerous and perhaps even uh, more inconsistently applied regulation. One of the issues in the UK and in the US has been that the regulatory body in the UK, that's CQC, uh, that they have applied the regulatory standards with a high degree of, uh, of variance. Uh, how homes in uh, Lincolnshire are evaluated by their authorities uh, is very different from how they're evaluated in another location. So the difference between how the regular regulator looks and assesses care home outcomes, care home standards in one place is highly variable. And that's, uh, that's certainly a problem and, and increases the burden for us who are attempting to operate and work within uh, those regulatory standards. And the one issue that hasn't been talked about very much, um, I think some private groups 
are beginning to talk about this and address the issue of liability protection and exposure in the insurance markets. COVID is opening up. This issue about liability, liability protection, uh, malpractice, uh, protection from lawsuits, we're just beginning to see uh, the ripples of these impacts in uh, management and in ownership of the properties, the assets in the sector. So post COVID-19, the likely recovery models are going to, uh, we're not sure about the depth, length, and the shape of the recoveries. I see two possible scenarios. Scenario one is that the sector is rebuilt and recharged. There's certainly a number of people who are looking at what's needed in the sector. Uh, innovative ideas are circulating, and I think there are lots of ideas on the table, but what I'm concerned about and what we should all be prepared for is that it could be ravaged and further relegated when so many issues need to be tackled, so many political hot potatoes, uh, hot subjects are to be dealt with. Will long-term care, care homes and continuing care, will it be further relegated to the dustbin of public service issues? I'm not sure. But I don't want to leave without talking about what it is that we can do. And these are all concrete steps, which we've seen work. We've seen work in multiple places and which we've uh, imported from other sectors when necessary. So uh, what we can do, number one, in our operations, regardless of where they are, is we can take responsibility for the messages. We can take responsibility for the narrative. And I believe strongly that we need to move and shift the storyline around long-term care and the value of long-term care to the community, the value of long-term care to its consumers and its residents, and the consumers in include the families. We need to take charge of that. And I don't mean portraying ourselves as victims because I don't believe in the long run, victimhood will shift the narrative. It will not create um, any long lasting or durable change. And while it may garner immediate um, sympathy or empathy, it will not in the long run reposition the brand of long-term care as being important, as being valuable, as being a good, uh, socially sensitive and, and exciting and stimulating place to work. It won't change any of that. So we need to take charge of the narrative and we need to tell the stories and show the images. And I know this is particularly fraught in the UK with its tenuous relationship with the news media and news outlets. News media and news outlets are always looking for the negative side of a story because it is unfortunately the negative stories that sell newspapers that garner clicks on uh, in the digital sphere. And the more clicks, the higher the value of the ads that get placed in those channels. So the negative stories 
do indeed garner the greater attention, but we have a responsibility to develop a very uh, consistent, regular drumbeat of positive stories and important contributions that long-term care is making to the communities we serve. What we can do, number two, so this is the second piece. We can fortify, protect, and defend the market share that we have now. And one of the things that we absolutely need to do in the long-term care sector is we need to review our digital assets. We have as providers, owners, managers, uh, as uh, consultants to the sector, we have been neglectful of websites, of e-newsletters, of our Facebook presence, and this is showing up to our detriment now in a crisis when families are relying on these digital channels now more than ever. This in the crisis communications mode, which is where we are, we have a responsibility for communicating and managing the story with families, employees, uh, our fellow providers, local authorities and other stakeholders. We, it's up to us to manage the message. <clears throat> we must accept and understand fear. Fear is operating at a more significant level now and will continue to be a latent or overt factor in consumers and their advisors and customers and consumers point of view about long-term care going forward. <clears throat> so even in situations where there have been significant uh, infections, where there's been significant death, where there's been significant negative stories, we need to take charge of those stories and begin to address, directly address what we can do about fear. And there's very good research about communicating in environments that are fearful and how we can manage the messages to assuage or reduce the levels of fear in the audience. Uh, finally, we need to do a much better job at service error recovery. And so there's a science around service error recovery. And you might say categorically that there has been a service error in long-term care, and it has been uh, our uh, inability to properly manage the COVID-19 outbreak. Many care homes, many nursing centers, many nursing homes, many domiciliary care agencies, many congregate care centers have done a wonderful job, have led the way, and we need to do a better job of understanding and communicating about those situations and learning lessons from those providers. But we also need to adopt a more scientific approach to service error recovery. And here are the keys to service error recovery. First of all, you've got to know when an error occurs. And service errors can occur in a variety of different ways. But you need to be, if you're the manager, owner, operator, leader within your organization, those errors need to find their way to you. And in many cultures, many organizations, frontline workers hide the errors out of fear of retribution and not wanting to look good 
are afraid of what the outcome will be, well, that doesn't help anybody. You need to be able to identify the errors. Then we need to apologize. Uh, very large research in the United States has shown that the major reason nursing centers in the United States get sued, no legal action taken, is because nobody apologized. And when you ask the nursing center managers why they didn't apologize, it was because they were afraid of getting sued. So this is a very uh, negative uh, cycle that needs to get broken with a simple apology and an offer of a solution. So we need to apologize and offer a solution, then do the solution, do what you say you were going to do, and then later on, remind those involved of what you did and how you address the situation. Um, we have terrific resources on our website. We have a presentation called Satisfaction is Cheap, Loyalty is Priceless, that drills down into the science, the behavioral science associated with effective service error recovery. Uh, this is very well researched and grounded in, in business, in the business press and in academic research. Item number three is we need to get serious in the sector about efficiency. Efficiency is a very specific word and it's not a code name for, it's efficiency is not a code for uh, eliminating staff, which is very often what efficiency is taken to mean. Oh, in efforts to improve our efficiency, we're laying off staff. No, that has nothing to do with efficiency. That's cutting cost and that's removing overhead. Efficiency is um, outputs for inputs. And it's not, it's efficiency is related to productivity, but productivity is not equal to staff reductions. You don't become more productive by reducing your staff. You become more productive, productive by having the right person do the right job at the right time with the right materials and to do the job right. We did a major survey among uh, care workers, frontline care workers, about what the difficulties and challenges they had in providing morning care. You know, personal care attendants go around and do morning care with individuals, the basics of grooming, uh, toileting, cleaning, uh, bathing, that type of thing. And what we found in hundreds of, of interviews, what we found was that the personal care attendants who had difficulties were the 80% of the time, it was because they didn't have the washcloths, the basins, the soap. And when we looked further, it was because other more experienced and more cynical care attendants had sequestered that stuff, had staffed that stuff away so that they had a secret uh, pile of this stuff put away. And why did they do that? Because they had had the experience that the staff who reported difficulties had had, and this whole thing was just a mess. And it got fixed. It got fixed by talking to the frontline staff. So efficiency has to do with the right person, with the right qualifications, doing the right job at the right time with the right materials, and doing the job right the first time. And efficiency is often talked about in the context of technology and information. Long-term care is the land 
that technology and information systems left behind, unfortunately. And the technology that's available today on tracking materials, tracking actions and individuals, pathways within a, within a care setting uh, is very good um, and it can improve technology, but we mustn't wait for the money or the advancing technology in order to look at efficiency, to talk to the frontline care staff, to talk about how we can improve efficiency and make the outputs um, more effective for the inputs. The, 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 the fourth thing that we can do is differentiate. Uh, and in the current market, we need to defend, fortify, and emphasize value, the importance of the benefits being derived for the care being provided. We need to protect, defend, and fortify current staff. We need to do better with service error recovery. And these will help innovate for efficiency and to differentiate our service in the local marketplace area vis-a-vis -vis other potential providers as well. So in conclusion, the current situation is that we've got some myths about aging. We're in for another six or seven or eight years of declining age qualified, uh, the size of the age qualified consumer market. Um, the likely recovery models and scenarios will be challenging. Our best and most effective response to this is to take charge of the messages, take charge of what we can do within our organizations to improve efficiency and effectiveness. And that is um, the message that I hope to leave with you today. Although as George Bernard Shaw, Shaw famously wrote, the single biggest problem uh, with communication is the illusion that communication has taken place. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please subscribe and be sure to tell your friends and colleagues. Thanks for listening.